Imagine that you're standing on the edge of a shoreline, a lake, and it's right in front of you. You can hear the water lapping up against your feet, and you're not standing on sand, but you're standing on rocks. You're standing at the Sea of Galilee. If you just picture in your mind, if you were to look off to your right, you would see, you know, about over there, the city of Tiberias. If you were to look high above to your right, you would see Mount Arbel, the wonderful mountain that overlooks all of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to look the other direction to your left, you could see the shoreline over near a place called Bethsaida where uh, Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves for 5,000. But then if you were to look down at your feet, you'd realize that you're standing at a place um, called Tavga, T-A-B-G-H-A, Tavga. It's from a, it also is from a, a word that it's also called heptapagan, pagan, which means seven springs. It's the place and the north shore of the Sea of Galilee where there were a number of springs. There's five of them that are still there today. And it stirs up the water and creates um, a scenario with algae and the fresh water coming in that provides a haven for a lot of fish. And so you're standing at the place where even 2,000 years ago, fishermen would frequent because that's where the best fish were to catch. This is where, um, when people ask me, what's your favorite place in Israel? Usually I'll say, you mean other than Jerusalem? And they say, yeah, okay. So it would be the spot that we're standing on the Sea of Galilee. Think about your own life. It's, it's events that make places special, isn't it? A place by itself can be pretty spectacular if you're thinking of like a national park or the Grand Tetons or something that's just in and of itself majestic. But otherwise, if it's just kind of a, a lake like the Sea of Galilee or like the special places in your memory, what makes that place so special is not the place but the event that occurred there. When you think of special places you're not really thinking of the place as much as you're thinking of what happened there. Well, the reason that this spot along the Sea of Galilee where we're standing is so special to me is because of two events that happened along this shore, both in the life of the Apostle Peter. First occurred in uh, the Gospel of Luke. You don't need to turn there, but you're familiar with what happened in Luke chapter 5, where the uh, the apostle Peter told the Lord, said, you know, we fished all night and we've caught nothing. And Jesus said, well, you know, go ahead, go on out, and let's cast on the other side. Well, all of a sudden, there's this miraculous catch of fish. Gets back to shore, and Peter says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter comes face to face with Jesus, the miraculous Lord, and realizes that he's not just talking with a guy who just made him rich as a fisherman. He's talking with the Lord. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Come face to face with the miracle. He realizes he's come face to face with the holiness of God. And when you, a sinner, stand in the presence of a God who is holy, Peter says, depart from me. But, but the Lord Jesus in his grace doesn't say that. He says, um, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. It wasn't a response of justice. It was a response of grace. Fast forward three and a half years. That was the beginning of Peter's relationship with Christ. Three and a half years later, Peter has denied Christ in Jerusalem in front of a charcoal fire. And then Jesus says a number of times to the disciples, after I've been risen from the dead, after I've raised from the dead, I want to meet you up in Galilee again. Why Galilee? Well, it was along the same shore where Jesus comes to Peter once again and provides another miraculous catch. This is John chapter 21. 
And the miraculous catch once again causes Peter to think about his sin. In fact, the, the, the catch happens along the shoreline, and now you can smell the roasting fish that Jesus has been cooking. You imagine Jesus cooking you breakfast? Wouldn't that be great? Talk about a perfect meal. <laughs> and after breakfast, John writes that uh, it does, he doesn't write that Peter and, and Jesus took a walk, but he says that Peter turning around sees John following them. So we know that Jesus and Peter took a walk. And so they're taking a walk, and Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus, in fact, asks this three different times. And each time, Jesus' response to Peter is, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep you know, shepherd my sheep. And each time that uh, affirmation of love happens, Jesus responds not with uh, a, a condemnation, but with grace, just like he did three and a half years earlier. And in fact, Jesus goes on to say, Peter, I want you to follow me. Don't worry about John. If I want him to live until I come again, that's not, that's not your problem. But you, you follow me. I love that scene along that shoreline. In fact, most times when we take groups to Israel, I love going to this place, not because of the place, but because of what happened there. And what it becomes so significant to me and to those who go and even in our mind's eye now, because we have all done what Peter's done. We have all started to follow Christ with a passion to love him and realize that in our own strength we've failed him, we've denied him, we've sinned. And by all rights, he should say, you know what, I called you to this, <laughs> you blew it, we're done. But he doesn't. Instead, he, he, he goes back to that place where we started and says, let's start over. Jesus brought Peter back to the very place where he initially called him to basically say, I'm not done with you. And the Lord's not done with us. Well, the events that I've just described to you were on Peter's mind when he wrote what we're going to read today in 1 Peter chapter 5. So let's look at that. 1 Peter chapter 5. We could pray and go home right now. But there's actually more that's so touching in the life of Peter and in our own lives. 1 Peter... We're coming to the end of this wonderful letter that Peter's written. Well, we should finish it up, Lord willing, next week. But uh, Peter has labored throughout this, this letter to encourage his readers and also to encourage us that uh, we're, in spite of the culture that we live in, that really doesn't appreciate us as Christians, in fact, wants to uh, even more and more is beginning to persecute us as Christians. How can we live in a world that doesn't approve or doesn't encourage us in our faith? Peter tells us very clearly, the way you do it is by keeping an eternal perspective. There's really no other way. Uh, and he says that you can laugh in spite of the tears, or you can have joy in spite of the tears because you're keeping an eternal perspective. He says, fix your hope, not on the weekend, not on Disneyland coming up with the grandkids, not on Christmas, not on this next year that's somehow going to be different than all the other years we've had. Your hope, he says, fix completely on the revelation, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes, that is what we're looking forward to. That is our hope. That is how we can live in a world that doesn't encourage our faith by looking forward to the world as it will be when Jesus comes to reign. And since, in the meantime, we're aliens and strangers, he says, here's how our behavior is to be. And he gives us several realms toward the government, uh, toward the, in the home, and in the workplace. And today, he gives us now another realm, which we haven't talked about until chapter 5, and that's the church. So let's look together, 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. 
So we'll just take this verse by verse, verse through verse 7, looking at these, uh, this, this great text. Notice he starts with the word, therefore. And when, it's, when he says, therefore, it all, always makes you want to go back and look at the context before. And we know from our time last time that the context before is talking about persevering and doing what's right, even when, uh, when it's hard. How do you keep doing it? Well, if you just press on. You entrust your souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Therefore, I exhort the elders. So it's helpful, I think, for those who are in Christian ministry. And by the way, though he addresses elders and leaders in particular, the principles are true for all of us. The principles are true for all of us because all of us, to some extent, are involved in ministry. And so how do we apply this this context of suffering? (laughs) Uh, I I like that the word therefore is there because what what Peter is basically saying is ministry is tough. Ministry includes suffering. Ministry includes having to press on and do what's right in a context where maybe what's right ain't happening. You've got to press on and entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what's right. And he speaks first specifically to the elders of a church. What's meant by the term elder? The New Testament teaches that elders are not necessarily elderly. Because when Peter, uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a young man, perhaps in his 40s, he uh, refers to him as an elder and as an overseer. And he gives as one of the qualifications for elder one who is not young in the faith. So we're talking about someone not who is elderly, but who is older in their walk with Christ, who, who qualifies to be an elder. I love that Peter could have commanded from his authority as an apostle, which is what he does when he starts in chapter 1, verse 1. He introduces himself as an apostle. So we know he's an apostle, but he doesn't, uh, he doesn't exhort them from his stance as an apostle, but he says as a fellow elder. Um, that place that I mentioned to you on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, is there's a church there. There's a church everywhere something significant happened in Israel, and the one that, that's at the north shore there is called the Primacy of Peter. And it's called the Primacy of Peter because of the, uh, of the misplaced notion that Peter is somewhat a cut above all the other apostles. And I say that's misplaced because Peter himself says, as a fellow elder, in other words, we're on level ground here, leaders. Peter says, I'm right there with you. I'm exhorting you not from my, my position as an apostle, but as a fellow elder in the trenches right alongside you. In fact, the, the word there for exhort is a word in the Greek that means to call alongside. It, it bring right alongside. I exhort you as your fellow elder. And notice his perspective. He's not only one who's in the trenches with them in ministry, but he has seen both ends of the spectrum in regard to the life of Christ. The witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he has seen Christ suffer. But he also says that he is a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, meaning he saw Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw both ends. He saw the suffering of, of Christ, and he saw the glory of Christ. And this is what he's also been talking about all throughout the book, the suffering of the Christian and the glory of the Christian that we have to look forward to. So he says, this is the perspective I'm writing to you. I'm exhorting you. I'm not commanding. I'm calling, calling alongside. I'm a fellow elder with you. I've seen both ends of the spectrum. So with that wonderful context, now he gives the command to the elders in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now, I mentioned John 21, but I'd like you to turn to John 21, if you would. 
and look at a couple of verses. Because that scene on John 21, there as Peter and Jesus were walking along the beach, is the scene that Peter almost certainly has in his mind as he writes verse 2. And I'll show you why that's, that's probably taking place. John 21, you already know the context because we talked about it. But if you look at verse 15, start at verse 15, and we'll read that together. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, now look at the next word, shepherd my sheep. The only two times in the whole New Testament that the Greek word for shepherd occurs like this as a command are right here and in 1 Peter chapter 5. So we know Peter's making that connection. The word Jesus spoke to Peter, now Peter speaks to fellow elders. And the command, you can turn back now to 1 Peter 5, the command is to shepherd the flock. This is a command Jesus gave to Peter, and now it's a command or an exhortation that Peter is giving to all elders. And if the context is true in John 21, then the context is true in 1 Peter 5. That is, the motive comes from answering the question, do you love me? It's really easy to serve the Lord from a context of, I feel like I have to. We don't want our children to obey us just because we have to. Now, if it comes to it, they have to. But ideally, we want them to do it because they love us. And we nurture them and provide a context for them that makes them want to, ideally. We have a relationship with them in which they love us because they obey us because they love us. Christ asked Peter the same thing. Do you love me? Asked him three times. Do you love me? And Peter each time said yes, and then the response is, shepherd my sheep. So the motivation for serving, either as an elder or as in any context of, of ministry as a Christian, is not obligation. That's not the, the bottom line motivation. The, mo the motivation is, do you love Christ? And why would you love Christ? Well, as Taylor so eloquently said earlier, because in our sins would keep us away from God for all eternity because we're not perfect. But in his great grace, Jesus died on the cross as a payment for our sins, rose again on the third day to show that our sins had been paid for, and the offer for us to have salvation simply by faith he extends. This causes us to love him. Uh, it's an eternal love. And it is a love that expresses itself in serving him. It's the only other time that the word shepherd is used. And notice also Paul comes along, uh, Peter comes along here, and he says, not under compulsion, verse 2, but voluntarily. It's the same idea. It means you want to do it. it volunteer doesn't necessarily mean uh, for free. What it means is you, you want to do it. You don't feel just compelled to do it to serve the Lord, but it's something you want to do as a response to what he's done for us. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, meaning you don't serve in leadership or in any other ministry for what you get out of it. It doesn't mean you don't get something out of it, but it means that's not the bottom line motivation. You don't serve for, for you. You serve for the Lord. You serve for his people. The gifts that he has gifted you with are gifts to the body of Christ, not gifts to you and not gifts to me. Not under compulsion, not for sordid gain. There is an eagerness, but the eagerness is not greed. The eagerness is love. John Newton once said, very appropriately, he said, the Christian ministry is the worst of all trades, but the best of all professions. I think that's well said, because it isn't something you want to get in unless you are certainly called 
to be in it, as a profession anyway. But we are all as believers in the ministry. And then there's another issue that uh, Peter addresses in verse 3. Look at that with me. He says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Here is really, again, the issue of authority. Um, it couldn't be clearer, according to the, the New Testament, that elders have authority in the church. But the authority is not to lord it over those. Bernard of Clairvaux said to Pope Eugene, he said, Peter could not give you what he did not have. What he had, he gave, that is, the care over the church, not dominion over the church. We are not to, have, to lord it over. Now, turn back, if you would, keep your finger there in 1 Peter 5, and look at Mark chapter 10. Because once again, Peter is quoting Christ. Mark chapter 10. You may remember as we made our way through the Gospel of Mark, you remember that? In chapter 10 is really the pinnacle of this wonderful Gospel where the disciples are doing just the opposite of what Peter has been writing about in 1 Peter 5. They've been elbowing each other to the front of the line. And finally, James and John, here in chapter 10, get their mom to ask Jesus if James and John can have the best seats in the house in the kingdom of God. And when the other disciples hear about it, they're mad, and so now you've got a bunch of disciples that are mad at each other and disgruntled with each other. And Jesus pulls them aside. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who were recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. So pause there for just a second and take in what Jesus said. He says, You know that unbelievers, is what he means by Gentiles, those who, who aren't followers of me, Gentiles, um, the great people in the Gentile or unbelieving world lord it over. They have authority, and they let you know that they have authority. You, know, you may have worked for people like that, so you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. But notice what he says in the very next verse, verse 43, and the contrast is very emphatic in the original language. But it is not this way among you, but... Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. So the great men, the great men, Jesus' words of the Gentiles or unbelievers, lord it over. And then Jesus says, but if you want to be great, then you be a servant and then he gives the example of himself, verse 45, for even the Son of Man, even me, Jesus says, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So to what extent do you serve, even to the point of death, if that's what faithfulness requires? And Jesus is our model for that. And we've seen that over and over in First Peter. So turn back to First Peter. <coughs> This is what Peter's referring to in verse 3 when he says, nor yet as lording it over. It's the exact same word that Jesus used in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And the word there for example is the word that's used, I don't know what it's called when you stamp something. You, you strike something with a, with a hammer and you stamp it and it leaves an imprint. I don't know what that's called, but you know, you know the process. Stamping. Brilliant. <laughs> okay, you know when you're stamping and you hit something and it leaves an imprint. That's the word that Peter's using here. That we as, as Christians, particularly the leaders, are to be 
uh, an imprint. That is, that if someone were to strike our life, what is left ought to be what to be modeled. That those who are coming after us or those who are looking to us look to us as examples. And we are to be a model. Those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Peter says that one of the purposes of authority is to be an example. Is that true? Well, those that are over in authority over you, do you see that they see? Careful. Do you see that they see <laughs> themselves as an example, that that's on their job description, is to be an example? That is so rare, isn't it? Unfortunately, it's also rare in the church. And Peter is saying that this must not be true. We, we don't take the world's model of leadership in the family of God, but rather those who are leaders are to be examples to the flock. You want your life to be a model for others to follow. Leadership without servanthood, if I can say it bluntly, is ungodly. This is what, this is what Peter is teaching. It's what Christ taught. He said that leadership without servanthood is like the Gentiles. It's ungodly, and it's inappropriate. Think of the various realms of authority the Bible gives us that even Peter has mentioned uh, in 1 Peter. The government is called a minister of God for our good. In fact, I've seen police cars that say to protect and to serve, to serve not just to protect. Christian employers, we're told, are to treat employees with respect, not harshly. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Church elders are to lead by example, not as lording it over. This is the authority that the authorities that the, that the Word of God sets up. And it's not that there's no motivation for anything personal at all. It's like, you know, you're just doing this to give, 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 and then die. Because notice verse 4. We just need to put compensation in its proper place. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Remember, he's talking to shepherds. He says, shepherd the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is reward coming. John Calvin wrote this, speaking of church leaders. He said, They often have to deal with ungrateful men from whom they receive unworthy reward. Long and great labors are often in vain. Satan sometimes prevails in his wicked devices. Lest then the faithful servant of Christ should be broken down, there is for him and her one and only remedy, to turn their eyes to the coming of Christ. This is what Peter is saying here. Focus on when the chief shepherd appears. Once again, he tells us, have an eternal perspective. Our full recompense comes when we see Jesus Christ. I heard a story one time, I don't know if it's true, but it'd be great if it, if it was, um, of a little girl whose mother planned to celebrate her fifth birthday by having the little girl sing at her party. And so the mother says, look, you're going to sing a song. And when it was time for the little girl, for the little girl to sing, the mother says, honey, is there something that you'd like to do? She says, No. And she says, well, weren't you going to sing? No. So the mother kind of gives a strategic pinch. And still, no. So, and this must be an old story because, boy, if this ever happened today, it'd be in the news. The mother took the child up and put her in the closet. About 30 minutes later, she goes to check on the child, opens it up, and says, well, uh, what do you have to say? The child says, I've been spitting on your clothes. I've been having a great time. I've been spitting in your shoes. I've been spitting on the walls. I've been spitting on the carpet. And now 
I'm waiting for more spit. <laughs> oh, I love that story. And I love that story because we don't have to teach it to our kids to have a disdain for authority. It's built into us, isn't it? It's built into our fallen nature not to want to submit to authority, but to do our own thing, to do our own thing. We struggle against the authority of our parents, and we struggle as adults in the various realms of authority that now we face. We submit to our parents, or they'll spank us. We submit to our bosses, or they'll fire us. We submit to our government, or they'll arrest us. But you know, that's about where it stops, isn't it? If we don't, if we don't want to submit to our church leaders, what do we do? We just go to another church. It's funny how, if, unless there's some kind of a recompense, we really struggle with following the Lord's leadership as he set it up. Peter knows this frustration, and he knows that the frustration for leaders is that they're called to lead those who sometimes don't want to follow. That's us, isn't it? As laymen, and I'm a layman, by the way. Somebody once asked me if, in the class here if I was on staff. I'm not on staff at the church. I don't have, not that that's, it's fine to be on staff with the church, but I'm not on staff with the church. So I'm speaking to you as a layman. Now, I am an elder, <laughs> but I'm not, uh, I'm not on staff with the church. So, but I say this because I understand. I've, I've stood on both sides of the, of the line, as it were. I was in the pastorate for 14 years, and I worked at a nonprofit for 12 years, and now for the last couple of years, I have just uh, my own business. But it's, it's a great challenge, isn't it, to submit to authority, especially when you don't agree. And uh, Peter has labored throughout this book to say that even when the authority is uh, not necessarily following Christ, unless they're requiring you to sin, we submit to the, the authority that God's placed over us. Peter knows that a great frustration for pastors is that they're called sometimes to lead people that won't follow. So he turns his attention now from the shepherds to us, to the sheep. Look at verse 5. He says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Now, let me just pause there for a second and apologize for the translation, I guess, as it were. It's difficult to translate sometimes languages. And the English, when we say all men everywhere, we don't just mean males. The word here in Greek for young, the young in Greek is plural, and this, the, the masculine gender here is used for groups. It's similar to like when we say mankind. We don't just mean male kind. We're talking about humanity. So when Peter is addressing them, he is saying all of you. All of you who are youth as opposed to not elders. That's the distinction. Those of you who are not in the elder category. So it's not just a, an idea of following or submission to elders. Uh, we respect those older than us, but it, again, it's not the elderly. It's this particular position that God has set up. And now, let's finish verse 5 and we get to the absolute heart of the issue. And we will kind of turn a corner, as it were, and leave church leadership and focus now on the rest of, our, the rest of us. Look at verse 5. I'll read. Uh, let's just start again at the beginning and read the whole thing. He says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves, he said. It's a picture of getting dressed, something we can all relate to, and a challenge we can all relate to. Have you ever noticed when you walk in the closet or you go up to your closet and pull something out, and then you stand in front of the mirror and think, eh, nah, and then you go back and, I mean, it's a process, isn't it? Uh, for some, it's a longer process than others. <laughs> but 
It's a picture we can relate to. It's a picture of getting dressed. And it's a great word picture because we tend to get dressed based on how we want to look to other people, don't we? It's often, very often, others-focused. Peter goes right in line with this, and he says, get dressed with humility toward one another. It's not just humility toward God, but it's humility toward one another. And it's a great way to think about it. You know, when I got dressed today, I actually picked this tie thinking, how is this tie going to look with this particular jacket and this particular shirt? Will it, will it work? Will it be okay? Or will Rex come up to me today and, you know, he, he really has a, an eye for jackets and stuff. And fortunately, he's not here, so I don't have to worry <laughs> about that. But we get dressed for people, don't we? And Peter says, get dressed with humility for people as well. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. I read about some kids that were building a clubhouse, and they made a sign with simple rules, three rules. He, it said, the sign says, nobody act big, nobody act small, everybody act medium. Isn't that neat? Nobody act big, nobody act small, everybody act medium. Nobody act big is, is pretty simple. Uh, you know, don't be arrogant. Don't lord it over. I mean, we can see that all throughout the text today. But nobody acts small either. How many times in our effort to be humble will we basically grovel? Humility is not groveling. Jesus described himself as humble. In fact, it's one of the few times that he actually described his own character and he says that I am gentle and humble of heart. So and Jesus wasn't, uh, wasn't groveling. He had a very healthy, you might say, self-esteem. So nobody act big, nobody act small. I think sometimes when we try to act small, what we're really saying is, I'm twice as humble as you are. <laughs> Which means now we're acting big. <laughs> But everybody act medium. Have a good, balanced view and just be humble. God honors humility, we're told. God honors humility. And God humbles the proud. Peter is quoting here from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, when he says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's quoting a, uh, the Greek translation, actually, of this. James, interestingly, does the same thing. If you were to read in the book of James, he also quotes this verse. And both Peter and James quote this verse in a context of humility, which opposes the devil. And we'll talk about that next week. You'll, if you notice down in verse 8, it's very much on Peter's mind in this context, but we'll talk about that specifically next week. But I mention it here to say humility is, a, is essential for us as we, as we have spiritual battle in our lives. It's, it's an essential part of it. And the word here for humble is, I mentioned, it's how Jesus refers to himself. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he uses the, the very same word that Peter used that he quotes here in Proverbs three thirty four. We are never more like Christ than when we are humble, because that's how Jesus described himself, gentle and humble of heart. Pride seeks to exalt self. Humility seeks to exalt God. So a great question just as a simple application from this text is, what is your motive? What is your motive? What's your motive for serving God? What's your motive for loving God? What's your motive if you're in some kind of a leadership role, or even as a layperson involved in the church? Why are you doing it? What's your motive? I actually have this written. Kathy's given me a verse uh, that I have written, that I have printed on my desk, and then I have 
written, handwritten in it, what's your motive? And I like to read that often because I need to ask myself that often. We all do. We often all, we all often need to answer, why are we serving God? The word that Peter uses here for proud, that God opposes the proud, comes from a word that means to show oneself above others. In other words, you think you're just a cut above, or maybe two or three cuts above. I read someplace that... uh, (laughs) 90-something percent of drivers think they're better than all other drivers. Now, that's not possible, but that's what we think. We think on the road that we're, you know, a little bit cut above. For some of us, it's true, but it's not, is it? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When you think when you think that you're better than somebody else, God opposes that mindset, and He may bring things into your life to, well, just to kind of remind you that that's not the case. Paul had what he called a thorn in his flesh, and he asked the Lord several times to take it away, but the Lord refused all three times, and the Lord's answer to Paul was hard to hear. And it's often the answer that's hard for us to hear, too. But the Lord Jesus told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to leave that weakness in your life. My grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because power is made perfect in weakness. You see, the Lord is not keeping us weak. He's reminding us that we are weak. And sometimes the, the weaknesses or the thorns, as it were, that God leaves in our life, they're not there to, because God's a sadist or because he doesn't hear our prayers or doesn't care. They're there for the very reason that he does hear and he does care. But he just is saying no or he's saying wait because he wants you to be aware of your weakness. Otherwise, we'd have a grandiose view of ourselves that would not be appropriate. Some of the greatest answers to prayer are when the Lord doesn't give us what we want so that in the long run, we can be who we want to be. Humility comes in part by remembering where we've come from, too. Some of us could stand up here on this stage and give some lulus of testimonies, like Moses, couldn't he, who had a problem with anger. Noah, with drunkenness. Jacob, with deceit. Rahab, with prostitution. Samson, with lust. David, with lust. Peter, with a fear of man. Thomas, with doubt. Paul, persecuting Christians to death. And God used every one of these people and many more in the Scripture and many more in this room in spite of our weaknesses. It was His power, and that's the point. He makes us very aware of our weaknesses and will not let us forget our weaknesses, not because He doesn't care, but because He wants us to have a proper perspective that when God powerfully works in our lives, it's His power and not our power that's at work. And that is actually a wonderful gift. Sincere humility, remembering where we've come from, but also praising God for what we have become in His sight, is God's grace. And since God gives grace to the humble, guess what the application is in verse 6? Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves. Literally, the original language says, be humbled. It's a passive command, which is sort of strange. How do you apply a passive command? A passive verb is something where the action is done to it rather than you doing the action. So a passive command means allow yourself to be humbled, which means God's the one doing it. Allow yourself to be humbled by God is what Peter is saying. 
You have to allow it. Otherwise, you stay stiff-necked and proud, and we don't allow the Lord to humble us. In light of the fact that God gives grace to the humble, Peter says, begin to allow yourself to be humbled by God. And remember, this is in a context of suffering for doing what is right. The humbling that God may desire to give you is a humbling that occurs when you're doing everything right and yet God allows you to struggle. God's humbled me a number of times in my life. I mean, he does it every day, but I mean, there have been some Lulus. There have been some, some watershed humility moments and seasons, not the least of which is growing up in uh, almost a nomadic home uh, where my parents were married, each one of them, multiple times. The circumstances I felt of personal rejection by them, um, I think they had good intentions, but that's still how I felt. These drew me close to God. God used that, that really challenging childhood to draw me close to Him. I just had a wonderful reminder of this this past week. Um, the Lord also took away two positions from me, both a complete surprise, both in which I had been told for years that I was doing a great job, and the Lord redirected that and has used that for His glory. And even in some current circumstances, God is humbling me, and it's good for me to be humbled and to allow myself to be humbled. I don't know, but you may be going through something like that as well. You may, you can, I know that you can look back and in hindsight see the humbling that God's done in your life. But when you're struggling with an unjust situation, say, this is good for me. This is good for me. In fact, let's say that out loud together. This is good for me. Okay, now you've said it once. It's healthy to repeat that because this is what Peter is saying. Therefore, allow yourself to be hum humbled. But notice, under the mighty hand of God. You're not just being humbled for humbling's sake. You are in the mighty hand of God. If you are allowing yourselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God, this is saying that you are trusting Him because He's mighty. If you are allowing him to do this in your life, you are allowing him in his mighty hand. When God humbles you, how do you respond? Peter gives two ways. The first is this, is that you realize that you are allowing yourself to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. You are trusting him. That means you see that there's a bigger picture, even though you don't see the bigger picture. You know that God does. It means that things didn't occur because God is asleep at the wheel. What happened in your life that's unjust or painful isn't, hasn't happened because God's not strong. You've humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God. And second, keep the eternal perspective in mind, or it may even be next week, to remember that the purpose of humbling is exalting at the proper time. Oh boy, we don't have time to talk about it, but there are a number of examples all throughout the Scripture, like Joseph in Genesis, like David in First and Second Samuel, like Ruth in Ruth, or like Christ, all of whom started out in a very lowly place, a place of unjust suffering, which resulted in a place of ex exaltation that God was preparing them through seasons of suffering for a place of significance that they had no idea. Well, Christ knew, but they had no idea that God was preparing for them. The same is true of us. I've seen that in my life, that God prepared me through suffering for a greater influence for Him that I never would have had otherwise. And He's doing the same in your life. And I think if you think back in hindsight, you can see examples of it. But it's also important to remember that that's happening now that what you're struggling with is not God asleep at the wheel, but He, in His mighty, sovereign plan for you, is allowing struggle so that, to quote Peter, He may exalt you at the proper time. And God determines that. God's the one that does the humbling. 
God's the one that does the exalting. He does both. And notice verse 7 also. What are we to do in the meantime? Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know, we usually, uh, I say usually, often I've seen this translated as a command. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's not the way the text is written, at least in the New American Standard, which is translated accurately. It's casting. It's, not to get too grammatical, but it's a participle, which means it's pointing back to something. It's pointing back to humbled. Therefore, allow yourself to be humbled. And the word casting is telling you how you do that. Allow yourself to be humbled. How? Casting all your anxiety on him. That's how you do it. That's how you allow yourself to be humbled, by casting. And the word for casting means that. Not like a zzz, not like, a, like fishing, but throwing. You take your anxieties and you throw them. You hurl them on God, which means you've let go of them. You are humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God by casting all your anxiety on Him. And then these wonder, this wonderful addition, because He cares for you. He's not asleep at the wheel. The humbling that you're experiencing is happening because He cares for you. And you can cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. It's a beautiful picture, and it is a wonderful truth. Literally, the text reads, it matters to him concerning you. It matters to him concerning you. God's mighty hand cares for you. You know, humility can find security in a, in by trusting a God who cares. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, said this one time. She said, I've learned that worship and worry cannot live in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. You know, we're not that defenseless when the God in whom we're trusting has a mighty hand. We're not that defenseless when the one whom we're trusting is genuinely concerned for our, our welfare. We're in a good place. And wherever you are right now, because God cares for you, you're in a good place. It doesn't mean it's just. It doesn't mean it's easy. But it means that you're in the sovereign hand of, of a God who is mighty. And if you will allow him in this process of humbling, we are told he will exalt you at the proper time. Boy, I'm glad that's in the Bible. Let's pray. Father, the words we've read today are our hope. It's the only reason we can continue to press on in circumstances and context where we struggle with what's unjust, because we know that we are allowing ourselves to be humbled, not at the willy-nilly whims of the world or chance, but we are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that cares for us. And we can cast all our anxieties, all of them, on you. And so, Father, we do that and remind us each day as we're tempted to have anxieties, instead to cast them on you, to, to trust you with the current circumstances, and to praise you that when it's time, when it's the proper time, that you will exalt us. And we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen.